Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is actually one of seven penitential psalms in the Psalter. And that's a fancy word to say it's one of seven psalms in our Psalter that deals with confession and repentance. This psalm and the psalm we're going to study next week, Psalm 51, both talk about a life of confession and repentance to the Lord. And that's what we're going to study today and next week, although with very different emphases. So with that in mind, let me read for us Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which what must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, all of us walked in here this morning with a peculiar relationship to our sin. Some of us, as we came to the confession, are racked with guilt and we're still racked with guilt over our sin. Some of us came to confession very lightly and thought little of our sin. All of us fumble how we think about our sin after it's been committed. And I plead with you that you would use Psalm 32 and next week Psalm 51 to teach us what it means to walk rightly, to think rightly, to love rightly in a life that sins. You can do that by your spirit. And so we ask you confidently in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start walking through this psalm in verse 3, and then we're going to cycle back to the first two verses in the beginning, but I think we're going to see three things as we study Psalm 32. We're going to see the way of forgiveness, we're going to see wisdom after forgiveness, and we're going to see a blessing of forgiveness, the blessing that we find in it. And so I want us to start by talking about the way of forgiveness, and that's in verses 3 through 5. You know, we at Columbia Presbyterian Church earnestly believe in the priesthood of all Christians, the priesthood of all believers. We take passages like 1 Peter chapter 2 seriously, and we say there is no true division in passion or vision or values between the paid staff in this church and the laity, between those who are going to be ordained as the officers of elder and deacon and those who serve as laymen in the church, all of us who are in Christ, have the Holy Spirit, all of us are entrusted with true and serious ministry. That means, if we really believe that, that you and I have serious pastoral responsibility for the person sitting next to us. 
Have we thought about it that way? That we have pastoral responsibility for the person who's in our life group. That we have care and concern and a duty towards the person that we meet for the first time in our coffee hour and we ask, how are you doing? And they say, not so well. That's the duty of every believer to come around each other and to surround each other and to minister to each other. Now, I think one of the most difficult things of that pastoral duty, one of the greatest challenges that we have as we minister to one another is to minister to a person who wrestles with sin, which is to say to minister to a person who's a human being. What do you do as you walk with somebody in your sin? And today I want to think specifically, how do you walk with somebody after their sin? What do you do after they have committed sin? After it's left the station, it's been indulged in, it's been engaged in, where does it go? Where does that sin go and how do we wrestle with it? You know, a lot of us have been in accountability groups that focus very narrowly on the sin itself. We think about acts of sin and we confess those to each other and we talk about that sin. When somebody confesses they've done the same thing, we frown, we feel awkward, we talk about maybe steps to keep that sin from happening again. It's important to think about that sin specifically, but what about after it's been committed? That sin is staining that person's conscience. That sin is floating out there somewhere. What do we do with that sin and how do we guide a person in that? Do you know one of the best ways I've discerned how to find out what happens to a sin in a person's life after they've committed it? You know one of the best ways to do that? It's to ask the person, what happened to that sin after you committed it? Where did it go after, after you indulged in that same thing that we've talked about for months after months after months? Where did that go? Psalm 32 delves into the area of floating sins and discerns where they land in the life of a believer. Look at verses 3 through 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. As we read on, we learn that David is not talking about the U.S. World Cup hopes. He's talking about a season, an extended season, of not confessing his sin to God and living with the consequences. Sin that's lingering on his conscience. We don't know what King David has done, but he's sinned against God and he's refusing to confess that sin day in and day out. This is happening over time and this unconfessed sin is becoming like a festering sore. He feels it and it hurts him and it affects him. But this is so goofy because verses 1 and 2 has just told us the blessing that there is in forgiveness, and verses 3 and 4 tell us how awful it is to withhold confession. Why not, King David? Just confess your sin to the Lord and enjoy the blessing of forgiveness. Why would you ever withhold your confession from the Lord? If you're asking that question of Psalm 32, you are dead right. You are asking the exact right question of this psalm, and in doing so, you are walking smack into the prophetic trap that Psalm 32 has laid because it turns the question back to us and says, believer, why do you do the exact same thing? 
If, if there is blessing and forgiveness, if there is pain and suffering in withholding our confession, why do you and I do the exact same thing and withhold our confession from the Lord? Why do we do it? Well, David alludes to one answer in verse 5. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity which betrays that there was a season in which David was covering his own iniquity. There was a time when he was not bringing it to the Lord. He was keeping it close to himself, and he was covering it. Now, that Hebrew word cover shares the same root as the Hebrew word atone. David, in this season, was trying to make atonement covering for his very own sin. Any attempt to do this, any attempt to hold our sin close, to cover it ourselves, to atone for it, and not give it to God in confession is not the gospel. It is a false gospel. It is, it is a truth that is, that is far from God's word. It's living in a way that God is not calling us to live as believers. And so Psalm 32 really shares with us the two places that sin can go. First of all, the place that we'll get to is the gospel. We can take our sin to the Lord. We can uncover it and find that the Lord will cover it. He says he takes it in its entirety. He places it on Jesus. And in place of that, he takes the righteousness of Jesus and puts us on, put that on us. Talk about a covering in which when God looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. That, that's the true gospel of scripture. But the other place that we can go with our sin is to make our own covering. This is what's happening in verses 3 and 4. This sin is not being brought to God. It's operating in a different gospel in which we cover it ourselves. We asked, why would anybody do that? If we knew the right gospel, why would we operate in a different gospel? And I think again and again, the Bible speaks about two reasons we cling to our own sin and don't give it back to God in confession. And those two are the sins of pride and shame. Think about these two things that battle with right confession to the Lord. Think about pride. The proud self-coverer makes little of their sin. This is the righteous elder brother. This is Simon the Pharisee. This is the rich young ruler. Like the elder brother and the rich young ruler, their first thought about their Christian life is how well it's going. And like Simon the Pharisee, their first thought about sin is how little it is. Simon still thinks that he's a 50 denarii debtor. We become proud self-coverers when we have a shallow view of sin, when we measure our lives against a standard that's not the Bible, and when we do that, we're able to harp on major sins like adultery and murder and forego and not even see in our life these other sins of gossip and slander and greed and anger and pride. I think you can spot a proud self-coverer of sin in many different ways. That person is not teachable. They have very little to learn about life and faith, but they have a lot to say about it when somebody else is struggling with sin. They're very quick to point that sin out in somebody else's life. They're very quick to give advice, spiritual advice, to someone who's suffering. Their confession is dull and it's repetitive. And if somebody who knew them intimately heard the things that they were confessing to the Lord, they would think, that's what they chose to confess? Of all the things that I've seen this week, those are the things they go back to again and again? John, John, the Apostle John, betrays this in 1 John when he says, 
There's no such thing as having this wonderfully intimate, robust love of God that doesn't translate into loving other people. You can't trick anybody in the church and say, well, I might be a jerk to be around, but trust me, I have this wonderful intimacy with the Lord. That doesn't happen. If you love God, you're going to love your fellow brother and sister. I suspect the same is true with repentance. You cannot say, I have this wonderful life of confession and repentance in my quiet time, but I am slow to confess my sin to another person. A proud self-coverer is slow to confess their sin to another person. This person is not happy. A proud self-coverer is not happy. They're not fulfilled. They're the Christian in verses 3 and 4. They'd rather guard this so-called drop of self-preservation than truly humble themselves in genuine repentance, and because of that, they are not a happy believer. Well, let's talk about the other thing that keeps us from confessing our sin, and that is shame. If the proud self-coverer makes little of sin, the shamed self-coverer makes little of atonement. We, we can't trust it. We can't take God at his word that we can bring the whole of our sin to him and receive his forgiveness. And because of that, we're timid around the gospel. We cannot possibly imagine in the midst of our shame that God would forgive the same thing that we've done again and again and again. And so rather than bring it to him in repentance, we keep it close to ourselves as if by keeping it close, it's invisible to God. The shame self-cover, this is the Adam and Eve. This is those who, who sow their own fig leaves and hide in the bushes. We make our own cover out of self-abuse. We beat ourselves up about our sin and our shame. We're racked in our conscience because of what we've done. We strive to do better, to be better, to look better, to make amends for the things that we've done. And all of it is really the same thing as a self-cover. We are trying to cover our sin ourselves, and so the shame self-cover is also the Christian in verses 3 and 4. We'd rather fend and scrap for ourselves than bring our sin to God and receive his forgiveness. Well, whether it's pride or shame, whatever it is that keeps us from confessing and makes us withhold and make our own cover, neither of them have anything to do with the gospel according to Psalm 32. So friend, I want to ask you, what happens to your sin when you commit it? What happens to it after it has left the station, after it's been done and indulged in? Where does it go? Is it downplayed in pride? Is it hardly worth your time of genuine repentance and confession? Have you downplayed sin that much in your life? Or is it, so to speak, overplayed in shame? Is it rehashed again and again and again? And does it become the source of debilitating grief to think about the sins that you've committed? Well, the psalmist shows us another way because whether it was shame or pride that he withheld his confession, it doesn't matter. In verse 5, he owns his sin. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confession is removing the cover from our sin. It's bringing to the Lord and it's admitting to him in all its ugliness what we've done to offend him. It's saying, Lord, when I was at work today, I saw my coworker needed help and I thought of myself first instead of her. And that was sin. 
I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? That's confession. When we uncover our sin and bring it to the Lord, we find his covering in its stead. We uncover it and we find the Lord's covering. And I love the poetic understatement in this psalm because we began with the psalmist in absolute anguish. He's withholding sin, bones wasting away, daily groaning, lost sleep, heavy hand of God on him. His strength is completely sapped. And after days of this kind of anguish, he finally, finally uncovers his sin, acknowledges it, brings it to the Lord, and he winces to see what is the Lord going to do. Not only have I sinned against him, but now I've spent several days not even bringing it to him in confession. And what does the psalm say? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's it? (laughs) That's it. Somewhere along the way, we got this thing so jacked up and so complicated for the believer that when we bring our sin to the Lord, he confesses it, and we don't trust God at his word. We don't believe he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And when Satan whispers in our ears, we begin to distort the words of Jesus. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And we hear him saying, come to me and I'm going to make you weary and heavy laden. And we get cold feet around the warmest invitation we will ever receive in our entire lives. Come, bring your sin to me and I will forgive it. When you confess your sin, I forgive it. When you uncover your sin, I cover it in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Come to me if you are weary and heavy laden. That's the gospel, friends. That's the good news of the gospel. And we're going to to end on that note. But I want us to think about the second half of this psalm because it's easy to overlook. We don't have time to give it its due. But in verses 6 through 11, speak of wise living after forgiveness. We don't want to miss this piece of our confession. We said that confession is owning, uncovering our sin before God. We confess it and we receive his forgiveness. But verses 6 through 11 talk about another element. Once that's been done, once you've confessed it and and received God's forgiveness, now, believer, live wisely. Walk rightly before the Lord. We don't often think about this in our confession. You know, we live in a day and age with this rise of a social media platform that just makes us communicate all the time with each other. We're always saying something to each other. And honestly, it's brought a new level of transparency. I think we're willing to post and tweet things that former generations would never imagine even saying behind closed doors to friends. And when we do that, when we air those things and even air our faults, it can feel like it's forgiveness. It can feel like we're being honest and transparent with our shortcomings, but there's a very big difference between that and what the psalm is talking about. Because really, this is not confessing, this is reporting. This is saying online, I'm so bad at such and such. I can never figure out how to do this or that. I can't get along with so and so. We're erring and erring and erring. But the difference between assenting and repenting is wise living. The difference between assenting and erring these things and repenting before the Lord is Psalm 32, 6 through 11. It is living wisely. Assenting is just airing our faults. Repenting is confessing our sin and turning from it to the Lord. It is a deeply personal act. 
and it's living in a way that follows after him, you will see fruit in the person's life who is repenting rather than just assenting the sin that's in their life. Isn't this what John the Baptist said to those who were coming to receive baptism? He said, I want you to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's actually a step that happens after repentance, and that is this. You are going to strive to live rightly before the Lord. We're not saying that repentance is only real when you never do that thing again, when you've totally changed afterwards. But what we are saying is the path of repentance in Psalm 32 is the wide road of righteousness. I think verse 9 is a powerful description of the life of a disobedient believer. Listen to this. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Is a Christian who stumbles over the exact same sin again and again and again and again and again still saved? Are they still saved, or have they worn out God's forgiveness? The answer is, of course, they are saved. God's gift of forgiveness is wild and free. We will not understand the depth of it, but I can tell you it's unlike any human relationship that you've had that has worn out of their forgiveness for you. It can't. But is that same believer experiencing the true joy of their Christian faith? And the answer, according to Psalm 32.9, is no. God has given us this wide road of righteousness to walk in. I'll never forget sitting with a dear friend and mentor who's now with the Lord, Dr. Larkin, and telling him about a time in my life where I was so confused and I didn't know where to go and what to do. And he just put his hand on me and he said, Brother, the providence of God is as wide as the horizon. Let me think about that. If you say with Psalm 16, I have put the Lord before me, if you are striving to turn everything in your life back to God and worship, what can't you do? The providence of God, his call on your life is as wide as the horizon. Live in it wildly and freely and adventurously. But if you are the person being described in this psalm that continues again and again to strive with these things and does not put accountability around yourself and does not pursue God in fasting and repentance and assents to sin merely rather than repenting of your sin, you will find yourself like this horse on that road that is constantly stepping off the path and needs to be yanked back with bit or bridle. That is not the life that God has for you in the gospel. Confession and repenting of our sin ends in living rightly. We seek more and more, fits and starts, one step forward, three steps back, to live wisely before the Lord. The fight for wise living after repentance is the fight for joy in verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Walk in that road of righteousness. I want to close very quickly with where we started in the beginning. We said that the way of forgiveness is to confess our sins, receive God's forgiveness, and begin to live in a new direction. But much of the blessing of forgiveness is lost unless we believe that it really happens. Unless we take God at his word that what he says he will do. 
Psalm 32, 1 and 2 says that there is blessing for those in Christ whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against who the Lord does not count iniquity, whose spirit there is found no deceit. There is blessing to be found in that. That's four ways to say almost the same thing. And the reason the psalmist keeps repeating that again and again is because the entire train of blessing that's barreling down the track of joy is threatened to be undone by one little pebble that's sitting on the rail called unbelief. What good is the joy and the blessing of forgiveness if you don't believe God at his word? His forgiveness is no less true for you. He doesn't see you as anything less than the righteousness of Christ, whether you believe that he sees you that way or not. And I pray that you would surround yourself with people who will remind you of that fact but you will not enjoy and sing and take the Lord's Supper with delight and and surround yourself with believers that you can encourage if you do not believe God at his word. He tells you this. He gives you Psalm 32. His understatement of forgiveness is an overstatement because God is saying to you, believer, my forgiveness is wild and free. Come to me if you're heavy and weary and I will give you rest for your souls. I will forgive your sin, and you will be joyful. Let's pray together. Father, the facts of this gospel are so simple. They're on a page right in front of us, and yet time and time again we walk the road of Psalm 32, and we withhold our confession because we do not know the weight of our sin, or we do not believe the delight of your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who are quick repenters of our sin, who delight in your gospel, and who long to live rightly. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.